In John chapter 5, verse 41, um, Christ says, I do not receive glory from people. I do not receive glory from people. Let's pray together. Father God, we love and adore you. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come, Lord, and to uh, speak of the gospel. Father God, I pray, Lord, uh, give me an ex- uh, 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 give me a, an efficiency, Father God, and an expedience in the, in the pulpit. Father God, bless it that every word, Lord, lands exactly as you would have it. Father God, you've designed this. You've, you've uh, you've given it to me, Father God, through my heart. Father God, you've prepared me, God, now uh, to, to deliver it so these people can receive it, Father. I pray, Lord, that there's work done in our hearts and our lives today, that things are brought out, Father, that we aren't, aren't aware of before, and things are made clear, Father God, that we're muddy and, and opaque. And I pray, Father God, that as we do this, as we share uh, this time, Father God, with each other, uh, that we would our goal would be to bring glory to you, Father that hearts and minds and lives to be equipped and ready, Father God, to bring the kind of glory to you, God, that you richly deserve as Savior and Lord of the universe. Bless us now, Father God, in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, quickly, um, I do not receive glory from people um, at the heart of that, and it is one of those verses that in my study and prayer, man, struck me. And I said, I've got to get to the bottom of this. I've got to study and read more about this. And as I studied and I read, this came from it. All right, just giving a little uh, hint as to the process. Uh, at the heart of that is that verb uh, receive, the heart of it. Lambano in the Greek, it means to receive or take from. And, and it has a broader meaning, and that is to refuse to offer or refuse to accept something. So it is, it is two-way here. Uh, for that reason, some of your translations that are a little more dynamic. We talked about what a dynamic translation before is. Not necessarily a literal translation, what's called a dynamic translation. Some of your more dynamic translations you might have in IV and LT, some of those may translate this as, I do not accept glory from men or glory from people. Um, the more literal translations, the word-for-word translations, uh, beginning in KJV, uh, ESV, especially NASB, CSB, those that, that are more literal probably render this to receive or receive. All right, so I'll let you decide which side of that debate you lie on. We do know this, that even if glory is offered, Christ is not receiving this glory, and that we can also assume here that glory is not being offered. People simply don't glorify God. And if they tried to glorify God, God's not going to take it. Christ isn't going to receive it. And we have to talk about why. Why does this glory, which is the essential um, mechanism of humanity and their relationship to God. Glory. Our giving Him glory. His receiving the glory. Why does it break down? Let's talk about what it means to give glory to God and how we can do it. Now, Start here. The Bible records the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Paul writes, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Very familiar passage, right? God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we have this ministry of reconciliation that begins with us. God uh, demanding through Paul that men and women submit themselves and be reconciled through the gospel to God. The only reconciliation to Christ is through what? His flesh and His blood, His sacrifice by way of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. It's the only way people are born again. 
those mechanisms coming together through repentance and belief. That's how we are brought to a point to where we can be reconciled fully to God, reestablished in the kingdom of God, in the family of God. And if you've never come to God through His flesh and through His blood, through the door that is His flesh, He says, then you've never come to God. There's only one path. It is narrow. It's narrow. It's not broad. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to, to eternal life through, through Jesus. That's it. The only way anyone else who tries to come in any other way is literally, in, I guess, in our parlance, a sneak thief. So tries to come in another way. Now look, any discussion we're going to have now, we've established that fact of how individual believers are to glorify God with their lives begins and ends with a very similar call to Paul's in 2 Corinthians 5.20 to evangelize the world with the gospel for Christ. You want to bring glory to God? Be part of the evangelistic efforts of your church to bring the world to the cross. Ultimately, God is the most glorified by that. All, everything we do, every bit of, every dollar of money that we raise, every prayer we offer, every, every bowl of rice that we cook, everything that we do, every uh, construction project, Chris or Joe or Buddy, anyone who's done that, all of that is to facilitate the sharing of the gospel with people. It's all secondary to the gospel itself. All the other matters the church can be called upon to pay attention to. And sometimes that's the vehicle, right? We go and we cook bowls of rice because it opens the door for the gospel. Okay, we do that. Or I'd say mistakenly devote energy or resources to because sometimes in our hearts we're just wrong. And we'll go and we'll do medical clinics and we'll teach school and we'll do all these kinds of things. And we never get around to the gospel. That's where the social gospel becomes truly an alternate or aberrant gospel. When it neglects the truth of Christ Jesus for the sake of making people's lives better. The only way to really make lives better is the gospel. Okay? Um, everything else is just key for a lock. To open up a life. That's all it is. They're utterly overwhelmed by the enormous task of reaching the lost for Jesus. If we just concentrate on the truth of the gospel, it's more than any of us can accomplish. That's why God's plan for salvation is the church. Not individuals out sharing the gospel on their own without any affiliation of the church. That's not the gospel. But the church itself, because it requires so many people banding together, sharing life and heart and resources. And if you're not part of that, then you are, by definition, neglecting the gospel. Do you hear me? Neglecting the gospel. So get with it. Get involved in it. Because it takes a church to reach single individuals with the gospel. It takes a church to do that. As Paul goes on to teach in Romans 14, 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. As we've established, building the kingdom isn't about filling bellies. We can fill bellies along the way, and we should, and it's right to do it. And he did, and I'm going to show you that. But ultimately, it's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Through the gospel, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, 
connecting people with God on earth, the Holy Spirit, who will fill their lives and give it meaning. Connect them with, them with the truth on a daily basis. Not just salvifically, but in terms of vocation, in terms of sanctification, in terms of discipleship. Bringing people together with God the Holy Spirit. Now, I've got to ask this question, and here it is. Is morality a legitimate response to the gospel? I don't mean theirs, I mean yours. I mean mine. Should we boil the gospel down to a moral response on behalf of people? Because, you know, as Ravenhill said, when we start talking about those kind of things, we get uncomfortable, we start calling it legalism. When God starts to order our lives, we want to call it legalism. Is God telling people in this room right now what to do and what not to do? What to think and what not to think? Of course, you know I believe that He is. I just need to show you. And I say this, what does it look like? If we can, and I'm always wanting to do that. If I can boil this down, Brother Mike, to one word. If I can walk up to somebody in this church and say, you want to live for Jesus, here's the word. I think I've got a word like that. It probably doesn't encapsulate the entire lifelong gospel response of a believer, a response of a believer to the gospel, but it is part of that equation. And I'm going to get to it, okay? We'll get to it. Bringing glory to God is a function of the morality of our lives in unison with the intentional actions which we take in an attempt to fulfill the call to grow the kingdom of God. So, at, at least, at least, glory to God involves a moral function and a function of what we do in terms of action with our lives. So essentially, it is both the negative, the don't do's, and the positive, the do this. Both of which are part of bringing the glory to God and both of which are a function in some ways of the morality of God. Alright? Let's move on. Now look, here's where I start in a weird way. Clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson. Not a believer in any way, shape, or form, but a studier of culture. And because he's a studier of culture, he's one of those guys that starts. It seems glaringly true what works in a culture and what doesn't. But what works about the Christian faith is something Jordan Peterson harps on a lot in books. Now, he coined a famous term in the study of ethics called the necessity of virtue. Virtues needed. This notion virtue is Peterson's understanding of the difference between morality and immorality, culturally. Or, the, I'd say a more modern perspective, amorality, the lack of any established moral sense or conviction. For the most part, our, our culture nowadays is amoral. It is immoral, there's no doubt about that. It is rampant immorality. But it is rampant immorality because even within the church we have decided that God really doesn't want to tell us what to do or if He is, it's in broad strokes and He's not serious. I.e. don't go there or don't do that. When we know that God tells us very clearly to abstain from all appearance of, immor uh, of immorality, all appearance of, of evil, but yet many of us seem to contradict, you know, just you know, uh, rationalize that all the time. And that God's not serious about doing that. So don't act like the culture's amorality hasn't affected us. 
Because you better believe the culture of immorality has infected us because those who raised us were much more fundamentalist about things like morality than we are, right? Go back far enough and you get to Puritans who wouldn't have set foot in the sin palaces that we go to and think it's okay and don't seem to care. Alright? Don't seem to care. So we've got an issue there. We know we do. So, so we're looking and, and thinking about ideas like amorality and immorality and wondering how they impact our understanding of the gospel. Now look, Peterson keys his understanding of the issue to the innate perspective within humans to view life as meaning full or meaning less. That's it. Do you view your life as meaningful or meaning less? Now I'm not going to ask you because I want to inform that. I want to take a moment, look at biblical issues, and let's inform the idea of whether you think your life is meaningful or meaningless. Because I guarantee there can be people in this room, even under the weight of the gospel, who are really living meaningless lives when they could be living meaningful lives. Even under the weight of the gospel. Peterson wrote this. He said, I think that often people come to the conclusion that life is meaningless because that's a better conclusion to come to than the reverse. Because if life is meaningless, well then who cares what you do? What I say, a lot of people will blame that on Jesus that somehow God doesn't care what you do with your life. He just loves you anyway because you say the opposite is legalism. Right? Say the opposite is legalism. What he really says is that you're viewing your life as meaningless. Well then, who cares what you do? But if life is meaningful, if what you do matters, then everything you do matters. Now what do you think, for just a second, in the midst of this, which do you think, in just a secular view, is more helpful to a society? Meaningful lives or meaningless lives? If you're reducing a bunch of people who think their lives don't matter, then what are they doing with their lives? Whatever they want to. They're going where they want to go. They're doing what they want to do. They're watching what they want to watch. They're listening to what they want to listen to. Their time is their time because they don't think it matters to anybody else but them. Now that is the current of the culture. There's no doubt about it. But in many ways it's also the current of the church. They may, not, they may know that is wrong intellectually, but they don't live as if that is wrong spiritually. That puts a terrible responsibility on the individual. I think that people are generally unwilling to bear that. It really comes down to, please, don't be insulted. The inborn personal cowardice of all of us. We're just afraid to really live for Christ. Because if you really live for Him, He's going to make you do meaningful things that are hard. Why do that? when you can be a coward and live a meaningless life and therefore never have to live hard things. You're always giving in to yourself. You're always surrendering to yourself. You're always making excuses for yourself and always rationalizing everything. So therefore you never have to live an impactful life for Jesus. You can just trudge on along and depend on the mercy of God to bring you to heaven. And never have to demonstrate that faith. Now, I'll be honest with you, been a minister for more than 20 years in Baptist churches. That is what Baptist lives live like 90% of the time. It's how we live. 
We live as if we're just trusting God because we're not really going to put any substantive effort into living a life that brings Him honor and glory. Listen, if you or I decide to stand with Peterson, we should because the Bible clearly teaches that life does matter, that our actions on this earth are important enough for God to universally judge them. Wrap your brain around that. What should deny meaninglessness of life and enforce in our minds the meaningfulness of life is the fact that God is going to judge all lives. The lost life and the saved life. The lost life at the great white throne of judgment. The saved life at the Bema seat, the mercy seat of God. Mercy will be applied, but the books are laid open and He's going to judge us. What makes your life meaningful? What means you've got to get busy right now, at this moment, living a life that brings glory to God? Because God's going to judge it. It's so important to God that He judges it. And I might add logically that God also must and does espouse a very clear morality or else it would be difficult to judge us. If God's not telling us how to act, how in the world can He judge us? If God is not through the Bible instructing lives in this room, how does God, even God, have the audacity to look at our lives and say, wait a second, not so fast, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you did. He does that because He must be teaching us on pages of the Scripture that this is what you're supposed to do with your life. Now, that's twofold because who comes in contact with the Scriptures both the saved and the lost. For the lost, if you're in this room today and you're lost, then in your account, against your account, is being built up countless, countless of offenses that God has told us are wrong and yet you have continued to do. So the condemnation that you can feel upon your heart is justified because you are condemned and you are condemned precisely by what you have done. Because it violates what God has said. God has been clear about morality from the very start. From the very start. The Apostle Paul writes Ephesians 1-2, through Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I told you, what I loved about being able to talk about this is, I didn't have to necessarily go through the old Mosaic law. Go through the Levitical law and pluck out those items of the universal moral code and leave behind the civil law or the ceremonial law. And just pull out that which Christ talks about in the New Testament, but that God is so wonderful and how He applies morality to us, He's going to give us pithy statements and say, by the way, you want to live for me? Here's a suggestion. There's one right there. How do you do it? Be imitators of God as beloved children. Do you want how to please God? How to live a life of Christian morality? Be imitators of God. Now, does that impact your morality? Absolutely. I'll tell you this much. If you're imitating God, you can't go everywhere. If you're imitating God, you can't do everything. If you're imitating God, you can't think everything. If you're imitating God, you can't say everything. Everything we are, all of that stuff I just ranted about, is impacted by that one notion of imitating God. If God wouldn't do it, then you and I can't do it. If God has never done it because He is sinless, then you and I are prohibited from doing it. So when our order's laid at the restaurant, we can't cuss out the waiter 
Because God would never do that. We can't be trivial and stupid under the blood because God would never do that. We can't go to places where there's sin because God wouldn't go there. We can't watch sinful things or listen to sinful things or read sinful things because God wouldn't do that. So to imitate God, to fulfill just one commandment means to radically alter even the saved lives in this room, much less the lost lives. The lost lives have to be foundationally, formulaically, fundamentally changed from the inside out. And the saved lives have to be remade to look like Jesus. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So as being imitators, the walk now becomes a walk of love and not hate. As believers, we have a twofold mission in living for Christ in the world for His glory. You know what I said? Live for Jesus in the world for the glory of God, expressed in that one term, be imitators of God. Live a holy life, set apart, and rejecting of the world. Do you hear what I said? If you are to imitate God, you have to live holy and reject the world. And there's no compromise on this position. There's no rationalizing this position. It is either sinful or not. It is either forbidden or it is embraced. There's not a gray area here. As, as kids would say a lot of the time, if you've got to ask, it's probably wrong. If you've got to think about it very hard, you're probably forbidden to do it. But two, live a busy life following the example of Jesus and doing what Christ did while He physically lived on the earth. Preach, teach, and live the gospel. So, to follow this, to establish a biblical morality that ultimately brings glory to God, what we have to do in our lives is this. God has to lay claim now to what we don't do and what we do with our lives. So He has an active an active investment in how you in the things you avoid in your life and an active investment in the things that you embrace in your life. That's who God is. That's how God shares Himself with us. We are doing this in order to define and I said ecumenically, I mean as a church. Not just this church but maybe even for a wider audience, maybe for the church in general, how do we define ecumenically um, as born-again believers the nature of Christian virtue? How can we put a finger on it and Miss Jane or Brother Chris or Brother Kyle or myself say, okay, I can tell you now, this is virtue in God's mind. Because I think a lot of us have walked around with an unclear picture of what that means. This is it. And I said, espoused us first by imitating God. That's the beginning. Now look, once the rules and the definitions have been clearly stated, then logically justice can and should follow. What I mean by that is this. Because there have been rules given. God has said, this is what you should do. This is what you should not do. And they're starting to become clearer and clearer in our minds maybe. God now has every right to do what with our lives? To judge them. You can bring justice once the law has been stated. Once people know that this is the speed limit, or this is the fine, 
or this is the procedure, you can now judge them based on that because they've been told, right? Well, it's been in the Scriptures all along. We should have known some of these things if we didn't know them because they've been there staring at us all along. Look, Christians are required to do very specific and challenging some things once they're converted. So once you are born again into Christ, it's not that you're born again, as I've jokingly implied you know, throughout the years, you're not born again to hold that pew down. You're not born again to, to necessarily come to Sunday school. You're not born again to go to Sunday night church or Wednesday night church. Those are all good things that God expects us all to be a part of. Every one of us without exception. No excuses. Don't bother. None of them hold water. God is providing these opportunities. Why? So He can prepare you and equip you to live a life that brings Him glory. And if you're not availing yourself of those opportunities, chances of you bringing honor and glory to God are, just be honest with you, slim and none. Slim and none. Unless you're a prodigy that just takes to it, and I don't see that within the Scriptures. We had the prodigy, but he was born as the law, as the Word incarnate. The rest of us have had to learn at somebody's feet. So if you're not being taught, if you're not undergoing the discipline of the Scriptures on multiple times a week, every time your church offers, you are by definition failing on this point. Failing on it. And all I will tell you is this, fix that. This is not just preaching for entertainment. This is preaching for transformation. That is within your power. If you are not availing yourself of an opportunity on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, you're not doing it because you don't want to. Change that. You know, the glory of God as an issue for us today is first an issue of biblically espoused morality. God's glory is a moral issue. The importance of everyday human behavior. Secondly, human immorality denies Christ the necessary glory that He's entitled to as our Savior and Lord. Human immorality robs God of glory. Third, human morality is the method by which men and women bring glory to God each day of their lives. Morality is another word for that daily commitment to Jesus. Fourth, Christ will only receive from us glory which is offered to Him under the conditions that He establishes in the Scriptures. Now, I mentioned this because Kyle and I lived it yesterday. Uh, Brother Kyle, as you and I kind of didn't debate because we didn't argue about it. We heard it and were shocked and appalled. Is that a fair? Fair, okay. Shocked and appalled. As we experienced yesterday, a person cannot just say that they are moral or pious or devout. You and I cannot lay claim to that moniker just because we want to. And we can't place it upon others. I can't say that my daughter or my son is pious or moral or devout because God defines those terms. If I've got to say it, then it may very well not be true. Right? Because if it was true, it would be obvious and self-defining. Christ determines what Christian devotion looks like by describing this individual characteristic in the Scriptures. In other words, you aren't pious. 
You aren't devoted. You aren't committed. You aren't living for Christ unless your life matches the description that God gives us. It is so broad and so understanding and so loving and so wonderful that it does include the fact that you are a sinner saved by grace, constantly on your knees repenting. It's not a standard of perfection, but it is a standard of obedience and understanding of the Scriptures. As the Master and we the slaves, Christ has the inherent audacity and innate right to dictate how, when, where, with what spirit, and why we are to serve Him. God does that right now. If you, don't, if you doubt me, listen. God is right now determining in our lives whether or not we are morally failing Him or whether we are in terms of salvation and responsibility of the truth succeeding on His behalf. God decides. Consider the answer given to Christ in Luke 10.27 as part of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the lawyer's answer is, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Once again, here's Jesus answering this question for us. Do you want to know what it looks like? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. What does it look like? People who are morally obedient to God will love Christ with everything they are, and they will find a way through the gospel and the power of God to love their neighbor as they love themselves exactly. Not love your neighbor, but love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. Only possible through Christ. You cannot judge someone if there's no apparent and enunciated standard about which to be judged. Christ tells us through the words of another that love for God in all of His incarnations is the primary concern of biblical morality. Primarily, we stop doing things and continue to do things and add things to our lives because we love God. Love is life-changing. Love for God changes inherently from the inside out. It's transplanted by God in new hearts and new spirits. So now we are capable of loving God in a way we could never do without Him. And that love alters everything. And that love should now foster a love for people which is just as controlling and just as transformative. Which means because we love our neighbors, we're now living a radically different kind of life. As I said, look, and I've said this before and I will continue to say it. That command destroys racism. You can't be racist and love your neighbor. You can't hate another country and love your neighbor. You can't hate anybody and love your neighbor. Any of those things, just those simple things added to our lives, by definition, make us disobedient, wicked, and rebellious against God. That one thing. Why, why don't we think that? Because we've so radically dumbed it down over the years that we've twisted God's Word to fit into our philosophy and not thrown away our philosophy to embrace His holiness. Because that's what the church does. That's what the church did for decades. Ignored the Scriptures in favor of what they wanted to believe. That is demonic. Demonic. That is the devil holding sway over God's people and over His church. And we war against that. We destroy that. Listen, the author, Sarah Miles, a, a former atheist war correspondent, um, who was converted at age 46 
and describes her conversion this way. I thought it was hilarious and wonderful. A personal story of an unexpected and terribly inconvenient Christian conversion told by a very unlikely convert. That could describe all of us if we're honest. I didn't want him when he took me. I had long ago given up on him and wanted something else and he came for me. He attacked my well-being. If God hasn't done that for you, to be honest with you, I'm not sure God has done anything. If He has not dragged you into the, into the light, kicking and screaming, clinging to your darkness, then it's hard to imagine that it's biblical conversion. Because everybody who gets converted is just like that in the Bible, right? She describes the effect of the teaching of the Good Samaritan as there's no way to be a Christian at home by yourself. Couldn't agree more if I tried. And the church has done everything in the world to try to destroy that essential theme of the gospel. That the gospel points us out and not in. The gospel does not teach us to relax but to work. The gospel does not stomach retiring. But the gospel takes old men and old women and makes them feel new and stay new so they can live new. That's what the gospel does. The gospel is always about Christ and His truth and the lost. And it's never about me doing what's convenient for me. Everything the gospel leads us to do is on some level terribly inconvenient for us, isn't it? Everything the gospel leads us to do. The gospel tailors our lives to look like Jesus in holiness and in deeds by calling each of us to love the Lord, His or her God, with deliberate works of volition and commission. In attestation, what you say and attest to and swear to, and in action, what you do with your life. We agree to discipline ourselves in a certain way and to conduct our lives by established gospel-informed rules. There is self-discipline in this. And the conduct is just given to us by God. This is a God-glorifying life. Morally and what I do. That's God-glorifying. Look, holiness is the fulfilling of biblical morality in our lives which serves not as an end to itself, but as the realization of, scriptural, of a scriptural mandate to live separately above or closer to Christ. You are not better than the lost world. You are not better than the lost world. But you are called to live above the lost world. Not looking down snottily as we want to, down our noses at people. But with the desire to reach down a hand and bring people to where we are. To look into the gutters and to the prostitute and to the drug addict and to the thief and the criminal and say, please come up to me. Because someone along the way condescended along with Christ to share the gospel with you. And none of us are worthy of the gospel. Not a one. Not a one. Holiness is fulfilling biblical morality in our lives above or closer from the world. The opposite of holiness and the life which glorifies Christ is a sinful or immoral life, which in its essence is what Paul speaks of in Romans 1.23, which says, "...and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things." Idolatry, which by the way is the beating heart of all of our sin. 
We sin because by our very definition, we are idolaters. We sin because we want to worship ourselves and what we choose to worship. Every time I say a word I don't need, I don't want, I shouldn't say. Every time I think a thought I shouldn't say. Every time I go a place I shouldn't go. Every time I do something I shouldn't do. Every time all of those things are true for me, I am being an idolater. It is the very heart of sin. And it is the idolatry of being heart of sin is the exchange of the glory of God for giving that rightful glory to created things. It's a glory betrayal. Do you hear what I said? When we sin, we betray the glory of God. When you allow sin to stay in your life, you're betraying the glory of God. Sin is an issue of the glory of God. No matter what issue is added to the life, Moses continues this portion of holiness of the overall call to glorify God when he writes in Leviticus 20, 26, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now, through gospel transformation, Peter takes that idea of our being holy because God is holy and begins our understanding of this verse's application. In the New Testament, when he writes in 1 Peter 1.18, Know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Wait a second. I, it's the opposite of it. I am not being holy because God is holy. It's because I inherited a feudal way from my forefathers, right? Did any of you decide to become a sinner? Uh, we decide every day. There is volition. There is a clear decision every single day to break the heart of God. But at no point in my life at, at prenatal or one or two or when cells divide or when consciousness comes, whenever that is, did I decide to become a sinner? It was automatic, wasn't it? It's automatic. It just happened. It happened to your baby, it happened to you, it happens to everybody. We just happen to have that because we inherited from our forefathers, from Adam, a feudal nature. A nature subjected to futility, but as the scriptures say, in Romans 8, futility and hope. There's hope even in our futility. Knowing that you were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Now with perishable things, such as silver and gold, a ransom was paid, but it wasn't in riches. The ransom paid for the eternal mitigation of the feudal inherited ways is not of earthly riches, but described by Paul in Titus 2.14 as the physical sacrifice of Christ for the sins of His people. So what was paid for you? Jesus literally paid it all. Do you hear what I said? Jesus paid it all. We sing it, but we don't live it. We don't think about it hard enough. Jesus really paid it all. We now owe Him. We're now in His debt. We are debtors of righteousness to Jesus because He paid a penalty we could never pay. The ransom paid for the eternal mitigation of the feudal inherited ways is that of earthly riches, but described by Paul in Titus 2.14 as the physical sacrifice of Christ for the sins of His people. When he writes, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people of His own possession who are zealous for good works. Holiness in the chosen people, the authentic and legitimate church of Christ Jesus is the theologically faithful conclusion to the work of Jesus on the cross. Holiness, holiness is the conclusion of your salvation. 
Your salvation doesn't stop at I will. Doesn't stop at, at, at your adoration for Christ or your repentance of your sins and your belief in the gospel. Your salvation continues to holiness. It's the natural work of salvation. Look, He came to serve as a ransom for those whose lives and minds are confused and deluded by the bankrupt ways of the world which they inherited from Adam. Outlined in the call which is expressed in Matthew 26-28. through Should be 20-26-28. It shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give His life as a ransom for many. Christ came to set an example, along with dying, He set an example, came to be a ransom for those who could not ransom themselves. Altering their hearts and minds and lives to reflect the glory of the One who came to serve by making them servants and slaves to God. Who serve the world now to demonstrate their loyalty to their Master and their conversion to the Gospel. Faith demonstrated. The natural outpouring of being born again is demonstrated faith. Undeniable faith. Faith that cannot be denied because it's seen by everybody. So we don't have to guess whether you belong to Christ because you have demonstrated faith. Stop making people make excuses for you. How dare we make people have to carry our weight because there's nothing in your life that shows the glory of God. The faith-filled demonstration that believers undertake after conversion by way of the indwelled Spirit and the engrafted Word is to love the world as Christ does. The, the, the very climax of this is that we now love Jesus, love the world the way Jesus loved the world. In the same fashion. Not with the same intensity. We don't have the same heart. But your heart's different now. You love different. Galatians 5.14, Paul declares, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. I said it before. Christ boils things down. You want to live out the law in your life? Love your neighbor as yourself. Not Tony's words, Paul's words. Tony's not taking a leap of faith here. He's not taking liberty to the extreme. No, he's saying, guess what? Paul said, you want to live out the gospel? You want to live out the Bible? Love your neighbor as yourself. Anything in your life that doesn't love your neighbor as yourself is sinful. Any thought, any action, any emotion is sinful to God. Love your neighbors yourself. Not because Tony said it, because Paul said it. Our goal as believers in Christ is to fill the words of Christ via Paul in every way that they can shape our lives and impact the world around us. Look at what Russell Moore um, said. He wrote concerning this call. He said, The gospel demands that we give explicit verbal witness to the call to faith and repentance. There's no doubt. We are called as a people to explicitly and verbally confess Jesus everywhere we go. In, in salvation, in missions, we go forth to expressly, explicitly claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Or proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. However, the gospel also changes our lives such that we purify water systems in famine-wrecked communities, mentor that homeless prostitute, sift through the rubble with tsunami victims, and visit the prisoner long forgotten behind bars. We love and we show mercy because the gospel is true, because life is better than death. Because we love life now, 
in the glory of God. Not loving our lives in this world, but love life for the glory and to the glory of God. We now want to change life for so many people as a vehicle for the gospel. The call to evangelism and missions is not made less verifiable because we're led to combine it with some humanitarian issues. To the contrary, as many of us have experienced in the mission field, if you're unwilling to help people, they will, then they will be unwilling to hear from you. If you turn a blind eye to their suffering, they're going to turn a deaf ear to your gospel. Guaranteed. Our refusal to help their lives is nothing more than our lingering pride. And yes, there are men out there right now proclaiming the gospel full of their own pride. This is a prideless gospel. We try to be. The efforts that we undertake to combine the gospel with a call to love your neighbor is, I believe, the fulfilling of a portion of the truth that the apostle expresses in Romans 8.28, which says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Look, alleviating suffering, it's just not enough on its own. There's no doubt. You can take all the water wells and run all the medical clinics, feed all the people you want. In the end, you do not change what's essentially wrong with them. The gospel changes what is essentially wrong with people. People can embrace the gospel, die the next day, and be eternally satisfied. People can embrace our bowls of rice, live another hundred years, never embrace the gospel, and be eternally condemned. We deal with the big issue. We don't treat a hangnail when the patient has cancer. We deal with the big issue. There's no doubt about that. The gospel is always what fixes the thing that fixes what's wrong with people. But when all things work together for good, then the call purpose of God in our lives is fulfilled in terms of gospel truth. Everything working together. This is part of the broad understanding of that idea. Within the gospel, everything that we do in the name of Christ for the good of the gospel works together to promote the gospel. Everything. We want a gospel that includes everything that God has to offer and to do for people. And the glory of God that is, in his, that is his right. The biblical term for this is compassion. I promised you one term. Didn't I? I said one term. Do we know how to live this out? How to live out the love of God and the imitation of God? The loving of our neighbors? Compassion. If we live lives of compassionate obedience to Christ, then we're going to live lives that impact the world for the gospel. The most basic reaction to the gospel. The most Christ-like emotion that we as believers can mirror in our lives is the idea of gospel-oriented Christ-like compassion. Look what the psalmist writes in Psalm 103, verses 13 through 17. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it. Look, though our weakness and vulnerability to disease, death, and rebellion is utterly the fault of humanity and their sin, part of being without excuse in Romans 1.20. Look, and we're without excuse in several ways, well, in a couple ways. In terms of truth, right, and fault due to the holiness of God. In other words, we cannot say that we do not know, nor that it is not our responsibility. 
The gospel comes with responsibility, right? Both hearing the gospel and now being made responsible for the gospel, right? So when you heard it, you both knew it existed. And now you know you're responsible for it. That means everybody worldwide without excuse, right? Without excuse. God still acknowledges the desperation and, and, desperation and limitations of our case. He cares for us. He draws us to Himself. God knows it's our fault. We admit, have to admit it's our fault. But yet God's response to it being our fault is what? He still cares. He still draws. He still understands that we are broken and flawed. At every occasion throughout His public ministry, Christ follows His straightforward approach to glorifying His Father. I mean exercising the compassion of God for the good of the lost. And that's right. God's compassion helps God through, I believe, part of His joy at dying for and saving the world. Because it was for joy that He does what He does. But God's compassion ultimately is more beneficial to the world than to anyone else, right? God's compassion caused the cross. God's compassion promotes the gospel. God's compassion sends forth the Holy Spirit. God's compassion created the church. God's compassion will give us sealed witnesses in the time of the tribulation. God's compassion brings salvation. Because God is compassion. So we start to see what compassion means. As he recorded in Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. So God sees us in our lost estate and he has passion for us. The obvious and scripturally faithful response to the issue of the harassed and helpless is the exposition of the gospel into their lives. So what's God's response to the gospel? God's res response to our problems and our sin? The gospel, because the gospel solves the essential problem of man. That they are harassed and helpless by their own sin. It's the exposition of the gospel in their lives. The ultimate response to the slavery of sin in the world which shatters bonds and frees men and women. As Paul writes in Romans 6.18. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The Bible sets us free. We were harassed. Excuse me, the gospel sets us free. We were harassed and helpless. And now we're set free from our bondage to sin, but made slaves to Jesus. Not liberty for the sake of liberty or the use of licentiousness, but liberty so we now choose bondage to Jesus. He's become our master. We glorify God now as slaves to righteousness by holy living. So there's holiness as part of this equation. Also Christ Jesus addresses the needs of the world and earthly issues. As the scripture records in Matthew 14, 14 or 15, 32, where he heals the sick or feeds the hungry. He does that. Or Luke 7, 11 through 15, where he talks about meeting the needs of widows. Obviously, some of the most vulnerable people in the entire society meeting the needs of widows. The gospel, the cross, evangelism, missions, everything the church does is a function of the essential compassion of Christ. We are the body on the earth that lives out the compassion of Jesus. Our existence is a function of that compassion. 
If we're to live like Jesus, to serve like Jesus, to love as He does, and to bring the kind of glory to God that churches and believers must, then we must embrace the ongoing and unfulfilled compassion of Christ as a passion of our lives. That's it today. Your very simple call is understand what I have said and try to get passionate about the compassion of Jesus. Because if you are not, then you are unfaithful to Christ. If you cannot become passionate about His compassion, if your heart cannot burn for the things that burns His heart, then you are unfaithful to the One who has saved you. Look, that action is the legitimate outpouring of a legitimate and authentic faith in Christ. Passion. The passion, passion for the compassion of God is the legitimate evidence. Today, look, if the God-glorifying life eludes you because salvation is the key element to loving and serving the Savior, if you are lost today but something's been stirred in your heart and you want to live this passionate life full of the compassion of Jesus, then I want to ask you simply, as, as Mark 1.15 says, repent and believe the gospel. What's the response? Repent and believe. God's calling you today to repent of your sins and believe the gospel before your life is wasted on the world. Because every single day there are people, many on church rolls, who are wasting their life on the world. Who every action of theirs proves that they don't know God, not that they do. For whom the case for their lostness is greater than the case for their salvation. If you know Christ, but have spent your life distracted or unfocused, then today's the day in which you must establish through tears and sovereign repentance. I mean repentance under the blood of Jesus, motivated by an ongoing, deep, working relationship with Christ, then you're going to be called on to repent today, probably with tears. To repent of living a life that doesn't bring Him glory. Do this today. Do this today, please. So that the passion of your life becomes the compassion of Christ in both word and in deed.